All right, good morning. Um, my name is Chris. If you guys haven't met me, I'm, uh, as of about 10 minutes ago, one of the pastors here at Damascus Road. So uh, excited to get to talk to you guys this morning. Um, Sam uh, has been going through the book of Exodus for, uh, gosh, about nine months now. If you're new here, we uh, pretty much just take books of the Bible and walk all the way through them. And um, uh, about a month or so ago, he said, hey, I'm going to need you to preach on Exodus and so I said, cool, you know, what am I doing? Uh, parting of the Red Sea, something exciting. He's like, nope, ephods and b- bloody, bloody animal sacrifices. So we are in Exodus 28 and 29, and these are really, really difficult chapters. Um, I, I, I just, I struggle with this because, to be honest, before I started studying them, these are the chapters in my reading plan that I would just kind of breeze over until something happened, uh, until I got to, to something that was really happening. Okay, it's just a bunch of instructions. And so if you've ever tried to read through the Bible um, uh, from start to finish, especially as a new Christian, this is usually where you get bogged down. It's usually the part where you uh, either just move ahead to, again, where something's happening, or you just move on to the New Testament entirely and be like, I just want to read about that Jesus guy I just met. Um, and so we really, we really don't know what to do with it. And so um, we, uh, we struggle. We struggle through these uh, quite a bit. And I think part of it is we struggle to really see the Bible for what it is. And so um, we have these ideas of the Bible um, where we hear people talk about it being um, a, a guide to human happiness or an instruction manual for life or uh, just a collection of inspirational stories and, and pithy statements and, and rules for morality. Um, and then the Old Testament just gets brutalized. I mean, let, let's just be perfectly honest. There's just difficult stuff in here that we have no idea what to do with. So you've got legalists on one end who are still dressing up in outfits like that. Um, or you have people just say, well, okay, it's just old and obsolete. It doesn't apply to our life. Let's just chuck it out entirely. And so I, I think that um, the problem is, is that the Bible isn't a very great instruction book in that it's not going to tell you who to marry or where to live um, or what job to take or whether you should go out to eat um, or what car you should buy or anything like that. And um, in a lot of regards, I think we look at the Bible from a man-centered perspective. We look at it to tell us what we should do or, or really just affirm what we've already decided to do. And so we turn God into kind of a cosmic genie who, if we just follow his rules the right way, he'll, he'll give us our wishes. And so really we're reducing the Bible to less than what it is. That it is a foundational story for how we see all of human history, all of creation, every aspect of our life. And the challenge with that is, is we don't use the Bible as our foundational story, especially if, if you're a non-Christian, you look at this as, as just useless myth. If you're a Christian who grew up here in America, you probably already have a foundational story, a narrative, if you will, that is shaped by your experiences and your influences, um, your knowledge of the world, or even the condition of your heart, that, that is really humanistic in nature, that... It dominates your thoughts, it dominates your opinions and your actions so comprehensively that it even changes how you act. And so, when you're reading the Bible or listening to biblical teaching, or when you're receiving biblical counsel from someone, you, consciously or not, are letting the story you have in your head dictate how you see Scripture, rather than submitting your life and your understanding of the world and your understanding about God to what God's Word says as revealed in the Bible. And I think this simply happens for, for two reasons. Either pride, you've rejected the Bible entirely, or you are a Christian who believes that this is God's Word and you just struggle to see it for what it is as a, 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 net, a meta-narrative, which is just kind of a, a big word that just means overarching, controlling story where you see the Bible as links in a chain that all tie us back to Jesus and to the cross, where you see it as a story of God's glory and God's creation that he deemed good, that that creation rebelled and that God says, hey, through a family, through a nation, through a tribe, and ultimately through my son, I'm going to redeem that world back to myself and that I'm going to have a new creation that's perfect. 
And so the climax, the, the central part of the story of the Bible is the cross of Christ. It is that, that point that all of the Old Testament anticipates, looks towards, cries out for. And it's that point that is just revealed so wonderfully in the Gospels and that all of the New Testament looks back to in unpacking the implications of what it means to live in a world where God sent his son to die for us and is now ruling and reigning over us. And we don't just do that out of some awesome academic knowledge we have on our own. We just do that because that's the way Jesus tells us to look at the Old Testament. He says himself in in John um, 5, talking to the scribes and Pharisees, you search this book, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, thinking that by just knowing these facts that you're going to have eternal life. But it's the fact, he says, that the Old Testament is a witness to Jesus that gives it its power and authority. And after he died and was raised again, he's talking to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they couldn't understand why he had to die. And Jesus says, hey, it's all there. It's all in the Old Testament. And he started at Moses and, and, and the histories and the prophets and everything and said, hey, all of this is about me. And so when we look at the New Testament, sorry, when we look at the Old Testament, and we look at the Bible here at Damascus Road, we're big on the Bible. And we're big on the Bible because the Bible reveals to us Jesus. And we're big on Jesus. So as we get in to looking at the Old Testament, we have to have an understanding of its lens all pointing towards the cross. And so when we go through the Old Testament, we see that God interacts with humanity through a series of leaders and teachers and intercessors that kind of fall into three distinct offices that from our modern understanding is kind of difficult, but we see these offices of king where God works through Saul or David or Solomon to rule over God's people. And this is kind of a lot like our heads of state now our president, our, uh, the, the rulers of the other nations, except that supposedly this authority came from God and that they were supposed to rule for better or worse, usually worse, in a way that God ordained and, and, and that God commanded. And, and then we see that God sends prophets to speak on his behalf, to share his word, to speak truth into people's lives who don't want to hear it. And in, these, in this way, I think these guys are kind of a lot like you know, talk radio or maybe the, uh, the late night cable show guys that, you know, yeah, they're speaking some truth, but they actually have no authority. And, but instead of these guys being pop culture shapers, the Old Testament prophets were usually just beaten, rejected, and cast out of the city, which some of us would probably like to do with folks on talk radio and on TV sometimes. So not a bad deal. But, and then we see that God interacts to us through priests where we get in these chapters here in 28, we see that he is going to have Aaron as his priest and his sons and his sons after that um, as mediators between God and man, standing in the gap between a holy and just God and a broken and sinful humanity. So these offices aren't just this kind of Old Testament framework for looking at things, but they're significant in that they not only show characteristics of God having order, speaking truth, um, living with us, but... Um, we also see these offices in light of Jesus, that when he arrives in the New Testament um, through the cross and what he does, he fulfills all these offices. While the Old Testament guys did it poorly, he does it perfectly and calls us to fill these offices in, in, in a small way through his power. So we're going to look specifically at, at priests today. And as we dive into Exodus 28 and 29, we're not going to just look at these ritual practices and clothings and garments as archaic instructions uh, or something to be ignored, but we're going to see them as a mirror for how God sees himself, how God sees humanity, and ultimately as a window to why we need Christ as our high priest that should lead us to a response of seeing him, excuse me, being his priest. So we start out in chapter 28, verse 1. God is speaking to Moses, talking to, to Aaron. Bring near to you your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abhu, Elzar, Ithmar, and you shall make holy garments for, your, for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And, and he says here in verse 3, you shall speak all the... Excuse me, speak to all the skillful for whom God has filled a spirit of skill that they make these garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are my garments. He goes on to, to list them. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron, and Aaron and his sons shall serve God as priests. 
So right away, we see God is telling Moses that God has chosen a head mediator. And God specifically tells Moses that these priests are commissioned to serve him first. Not the people, but him first. He says it three times. And so we have to wonder, why do we need a mediator? Why is the relationship broken that God can't just deal with the Israelites individually and deal with us individually? And so we have to, again, go back through the story of Scripture. We see in Genesis 3 that man has rebelled against God. And by disobeying God's word and command, humanity falls into a constant state of conflict with the Creator. You have to know that we're at war with God. And that that war, that rebellion is called sin. It's a word that doesn't get used a lot today, but we talk about it a lot here. And the consequence of that sin is death and eternal separation from God. There is a broken relationship. There's damage that has been done through that rebellion. But we begin to see God's grace revealed even early on here that while God is not the offended, excuse me, the offending party, we are, humanity is, it's God that initiates the reestablishment of the relationship. And so God lays down a foundation for this relationship being restored. And so these priests as God's representatives are to have these holy garments to set them apart from the rest of the people. This is not your typical Israelite hanging out in the desert for 40 years garb. This is different. It's, it's special. Um, and in fact, even the fact that it is creative and to their sense beautiful um, is because God put his spirit into talented people to make that happen. So, so, so God does it. Again, it's not out of man's work. And so we see uh, as he begins to talk about uh, the ephod, which is really just kind of this um, holy apron, he, he starts to describe it. Um, and, and he says in, in verse 9 and 10 and going on to verse 12 that, that, you're gonna, that he tells him to take these two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of Israel, six on one, six on the other, and that you're going to wear those in remembrance uh, when you come to God. And so we start to get the details of these garments, what they're going to look like, and Aaron the high priest and those who would follow him are, are going to wear something that represents a specific set of people. And that kind of begs the question, why these people? Israel was not the largest nation in the world. It still isn't. And, and, and why do these stones have their names and, and not the names of Egypt or of the Philistines or, or of other people? And, and so what we see is that we see that in light of the greater narrative of Scripture, again, going back, we go back to Genesis, and God made some promises to a man named Abraham. And he said, hey, you who I've chosen through no good of your own, you and your nation, are, are, your, your family is going to grow to be a nation, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And God reaffirms that covenant with his son, Isaac, and then his son, Jacob, who has 12 sons who they call the tribes of, of, of Israel. And so we see through that that God is specific about how we're to interact with him. That God, unlike the God of this world, unlike our culture, God is not a universalist. He says, I'm creator. I'm going to set up the rules and the terms on how you're going to deal with me. You don't get to pick and choose how you think I want to respond. I'm going to choose one way to respond for you to come to me. And it's not because Israel was better than these other nations. In fact, like I said, they're smaller. They're the most adulterous, unfaithful people in the world. And God uses them to show his grace and his mercy that even through their infidelity, God still remains faithful. And so, again, we see that grace. And that grace continues as he moves on to uh, another item, the breast piece of judgment that kind of goes over the ephod there. And... We see that these priests, yes, they're representatives of a holy God, but to be a worthy mediator, they can't just represent God. They also have to represent the people. And so again, on this, this piece, there's a remembrance of the nations of Israel. And in verse 29, it says that he'll wear this on his heart, literally as a reminder of the nation and the people they represent. But in addition to those 12 stones, God says, hey, on this piece, I want you to add a couple more. And so in verse 30, he says, you shall put on 
Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. And then he goes on to say, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart of the Lord regularly. Now, again, when I've read through these chapters so fast where I'm just barely seeing words come out, I honestly thought that they were talking about Uma Thurman in this section of the Bible. I did. Like, I was, I'm like, what is this? How did the chick from Pulp Fiction get in the Old Testament? So um, I, I see that. I'm like, okay, I've got to drill down. I have no idea what these words mean. And probably none of us here have a good sense. And so do a little research and, and you find that I, with great intentionality these stones were chosen because their words, the meanings of these two words, mean light and perfection. And so we see characteristics of God that we're supposed to remember that with God there is light and life and God is perfect. But with man and sin there's darkness and death and brokenness. And so not only do these represent God in in that way, but they start with the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, kind of showing intentionally that God is eternal from beginning to end. And not just uh, the God of of the Old Testament we see, but but we actually see Jesus talk about him being the light and perfection in in John 8 when he says, I'm the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we see that Jesus lived that sinless and perfect life, and that he tells us in Revelation that he's eternal as well. He says, I'm the first and the last. In the Greek, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the the beginning and end of the alphabet, who is and who was and who is to come. So with this as well, we see the bookends of the gospel. We see this biblical story starting out with God speaking light into existence. And we see through this breast piece of, of judgment that there's broken people who broke relationship with God that requires a judgment to be made. And that we see at the end that God's plan for redemption is going to lead to perfection and a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation through the work of His Son, Jesus, on the cross. And so we see that and he instructs the priest to remember three characteristics through this when he comes to God regularly. You're to remember the people, the brokenness of the people. And you're to remember the perfection and light and, per- and goodness of God. And you're also to remember that there's righteous judgment. And so the priests are to remember that. And we're called to remember that. And it's a burden on these priests to think about these things because these are deep, weighty concepts that I think most of us just completely ignore. I don't think we think about the brokenness of humanity when we live in a country where a family decides to divorce on national television for the sake of their children or we see on the other side of the world people getting beaten and shot because they didn't feel like their voice was getting heard. Or how while those people are getting beaten, we're more concerned about the death of a guy who's saying beat it. Something wrong there? A little bit? And so we're to carry that on us. And we're also to consider how amazing and perfect and wonderful God is. But we don't like to do that because it reminds us of how broken we are. And the last thing we like to think about is judgment. We don't want to judge anybody. We don't want anybody judging us. And so they're to remember this all the time. And he's telling us that we're to remember each of these with a depth that will crush and break our hearts with a regularity that leads us to serve the Creator and love His creation, to love people. And so we move on. There's one last, last piece of the garment that I'm going to talk about here real quick. And that's in 30, verses 36 and 38. He talks about um, how... at He has this decked out outfit that on this turban there's going to be this crown of gold that's going to say, Holy to the Lord written on it. And uh, this this engraving, this piece of gold, it's translated throughout the Bible as a crown. The Israel at this point doesn't have a king. So God's going to deal with Aaron as the representative for Israel, as the highest representative. That he says that Aaron will bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel do. And he will bear their judgment. And so even though the priesthood maybe didn't commit sins, they're still going to be the responsible party for it. 
And again, we, just, we see this in our own lives through what Christ did on the cross, but we go all the way back to Genesis where Eve is the one that, that broke God's law first and ate the apple, and Adam, of course, participated. But when God shows up, he deals with Adam as the representative. And later, the nation of Israel will see God deal with another man who didn't have sin, wasn't responsible for sin, wasn't rebelling, but was perfect and sinless and blameless. And he'll see him deal with that man as high priest. And instead of an ornate crown of gold, this priest, Jesus, is going to wear a crown of thorns. And instead of saying holy to the Lord over him, there's going to be a sign mocking him as king of the Jews, when in fact he's the ruler of all humanity and all of creation. And so the priests are decked out. You're thinking, hey, this is a decent religious system. These guys just get dressed up. They come before God. And then we come to chapter 29. And God says, okay, you're going to have to do a few things. He says that you're going to have to be consecrated as a priest. That's a word that we don't use much, but it means to make holy or set apart. In this case, to be set apart from the rest of the nation of Israel as, as a representative for, for God's service. And he tells them to, uh, and I'm not going to read through it all, but you can see in the beginning section here that He's going to have them bring um, some rams and some bulls. He's going to tell them that in verse 4 that they're going to bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, so they're not coming into the God's presence yet. And, but you're going to tell them to wash with water ceremonially. And then he, he goes on to say, you know, you're going to get all dressed up. The priesthood is going to be ordained. Um, and so we see that even these like varsity-level religious guys chosen by God, decked out in their Israelite pimp suit here, are going to come before God, but they're not going to be good enough. They have to be washed with water. They have to be washed with, with the Word of, of God. And so that's because God is eternal. He doesn't just see them at that moment, like, like on your wedding day, if you got married, hopefully you got dressed up. I heard about a guy yesterday that didn't even have an iron shirt when he got married. But for most of us, we got all dressed up real nice and had some pictures taken, and we always want to be remembered at that moment, at that age, at that weight, and that outfit. Um, and, uh, but God's eternal, he, he doesn't just see the snapshot of when they enter. He sees all their brokenness and all their sin and everything that they've done, whether in private or in secret, not just how great they are when they want to be presentable to people. So he tells them to wash. And not only that, he says, you're going to have to make a sacrifice to see me. Because he tells them in verse 10, he kind of outlines that the sons of Aaron, 10 through 14, um, would lay their hands on one of the bulls. And he would, um, they would use that to identify, God, this bull is our substitute. And they would kill that bull to appease God so that God wouldn't exert his wrath on them. And it's a pretty amazing picture of the gospel, I think, because, like I said, these guys are varsity-level religious types, and they still need a sacrifice for sin. I need Jesus more now than I did a half hour ago to atone for my sin and my pride and my brokenness. And so these guys, before they can come to God to pay Israel's debt or to pay humanity's debt, they have to pay their own debt. Just like if you are going to pay somebody else's credit card bill and you come to them and you have a big list of debts, you say, hey, I want to pay them off. They say, no, I have business with you first. God has business with the priests first. And so I don't think Peter would have been too excited about the rest of this chapter because they go on um, to offer similar sacrifices with two small rams, again, before they even come before God. And it was bloody, bloody work. And I think that the, God does this to, to show us two very, very important things. That he takes our sin seriously and he sees it as disgusting. There is no way the priests could have not seen the consequences of sin as anything but disgusting as they're murdering and butchering these animals all over the place. And he does this as well to show us and to show them that God's not going to be impressed with religious observance. God's not going to be impressed that you got dressed up for him and that you followed his rules. There's still going to have to be an atonement for sin to make the relationship right with God. 
And so, like I said, they go on, they kill these animals, they kill these rams, um, they take some of the blood of the rams and put it on the tips of their ears and the tips of their thumbs and the tips of their toes to symbolically show them being completely covered with the blood of these animals as a substitute. And they come before God to give offerings on Lord's behalf. And, and in verses 24 and 25, you see that they take these pieces of the goat and they wave them up before God and say, Here, God, we killed these animals for you. We did this for you. And then they slap them down on what I want to call the holy barbecue. And they start grilling these things. And the Bible says it was a pleasing aroma to God. And last night we had a big barbecue and um, we slapped on this really nice carne asada steak and we opened up the grill and you could just smell it rising up and it was just delicious. And so the next time you all are, are out at a barbecue and you're cooking up, you can say, hey, we're going Old Testament today. We're grilling up some meat and we're going to make God happy through steak. You know, I don't think he was too, I mean, it says animals. It didn't say throw on some corn or anything. It said, you know, steak. So, um, all right. I'm just getting hungry here, second service. So they continue these sacrifices. God sets up later in the chapter a method of secession that this priesthood is going to go through the sons of Aaron and their sons. And so this priesthood is going to be established and qualified by their birth, like a royal family almost. And then, uh, then he comes and he says, okay, this isn't a one-time deal. You're going to have to kill a ram, or excuse me, kill a bull for yourselves every day. And you're going to have to kill these rams day by day by day regularly to atone for the sins of humanity. Because we have new sins every day. We have new challenges every day. And I'm guessing there could have been a sense of kind of, oh boy, we're in for this for a long haul from the priests. And they thought maybe, well, okay, God told us to do it. Maybe we can just white-knuckle it. Maybe we can just try really, really hard to get this right. God laid out this law. We'll do it every day. Every day we're going to get up, we're going to do this. Every day we're going to get up and read our Bible. Every day we're going to get up and pray and have a quiet time and do all these things and listen to podcasts and sermons and all that. And, and finally, they're realizing this is not good news. This is not the gospel. This is... This is legalism. This is religion. This is tiring. This is burdensome every day. And so, again, just like in Genesis a few chapters later, Sam preached on this a while ago, Israel just says, let's just chuck it all together. This religion is hard. We can't follow this every day. Let's just get drunk and naked. That sounds like a lot more fun. And so, I have a hard time understanding how people can't see the Old Testament's a lot like today. We struggle back and forth with religion, self-righteousness, trying to appease God until certainly we just get frustrated to the point where we just say, forget it all. Let's just get drunk and naked. And yet through that we think we have achieved some sort of sense of freedom from God's law and those burdens. And yet we're just put into a new type of slavery. A slavery of sin and of, of death and of, of idolatry and, and passions. And, and so there has to be something better. And in fact, God tells us that the purpose of all of these things are just to show that in the end, God wants to meet with us. He wants to be with us. He wants us to know, in the last verses of this chapter, he says, I want them to know that I'm going to dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And he wants the people to know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt, that I might dwell with them and that I'm their Lord. And so we see that God wants us to know Excuse me. That we need to be back in relationship with him. But religion doesn't work for Israel. It doesn't work for us. It screams for something better. There's got to be something better than religion. There's got to be something better than useless license. Um, and so they can't measure up. Israel can't measure up. We can't measure up. And so generations of Israel go back and forth between legalism and, and license. And we've seen that in the last hundred years in our country where generations go, let's go moral. Let's, no, no, no moral. Let's, let's just go back and forth, back and forth. And, and it screams out for something better until finally Israel tells God later in the Old Testament, just give us a king. We don't want to do this religion thing anymore. Let's try government. 
Just give us a king like everybody else in the world has a king. We don't have a king. God's like, I'm your king. They're like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, you're our king, but no, I mean, we need like a guy. And so they, God says, well, the rest of these nations are wicked and corrupt. And they lord their authority over their people and their people are unhappy and miserable. And, and, and you don't want that. It's not going to go well. And so the people persist. Like, like my toddlers, when they wake up, they, my twin girls, they get up and it's daddy apple juice, daddy apple juice, daddy apple juice, daddy apple juice. And I'm like, okay, fine, here's your apple juice. And so God says, here, here, you want a king? Here's your king. And so he gives them a king. And what do you know? It doesn't go well. God was right. Israel was wrong. Israel exchanged religion for government, thinking that these new laws and this new authority would somehow make things better. And all it did was go to show that it was their hearts that are the issue. That they're broken. That it's not, we just got to follow some different set of rules and we need another guy. And so Israel, after this, this king doesn't work, it's, the other nations rip Israel apart. The rulers are corrupt. They're spending too much money. They're sleeping with people from other countries. They don't, shouldn't be. Sound familiar at all? Okay, so maybe you guys don't have Fox News. That's probably a good thing. So um, don't watch the news. It's just a total waste of time. Um, so so their, their rulers are corrupt. Again, just like today. And so Israel says, okay, okay, God, you, our, our people are spread all over the world. Let's just go back to religion. We'll try that again. We'll, we'll try it again better. We'll do it. Uh, except... So they, they go and they, they, they dust off the old ephods from the closet, you know, try to, try to put on their wedding dress after, you know, a few kids and a few extra years and pounds and it fits not quite right. And they come before God and they light off the holy barbecue and start slapping down some lamb chops. And, and God says, no, that system doesn't work. You can try it. You can keep going over and over, but it's not going to work because it's not going to fix your heart. And so... He speaks to them through his prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 1, uh, 11 through 17, he sends, sends word to the people. Find it here for you real quick. He says to the people that he's not going to be pleased with their sacrifice. That what to me, in verse 11, is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord, Chapter 1. I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And it goes on to say, hey, I, the next few verses, I don't like your man-made religion. The fact that you're doing these things and sacrificing and trying to put on a good show for me doesn't matter because you're sinful. I want your heart. I want you to obey me. I want you to want to obey me. I want you to love other people and not yourselves. And so he says, I'm not going to do this system anymore. And God sends some other prophets to let them know that there's going to be a new covenant. That the old covenant was a failure. That the new covenant's going to come and it's going to make the old one obsolete. So he sends Jeremiah in, in Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out of Egypt. The covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. They were an adulterous, cheating wife. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of them, that I'll put their law, excuse me, put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. He says... You won't have to even teach people God's law. They'll just know it because it'll be in their heart and their spirit. And then God sends Ezekiel, and Ezekiel says, God's going to take out these hearts of stone you have that aren't obeying God, and he's going to put in a heart of flesh. God's going to do the work, not us. And so, after generations of rejecting God's words spoken by his prophet, Israel keeps playing the religion game, and the rest of the world keeps being continued in spiritual darkness and idolatry, mired in it, and, and God just goes silent. doesn't say anything for 400 years. No priests, no kings, no prophets, until his son Jesus arrives. And the memory of all those priests and kings and prophets that were imperfect 
comes to life again as we see a perfect king, a perfect prophet, a perfect, a perfect priest, rather. And, and, and so we see Jesus coming and perfectly fulfilling those offices that the Old Testament foreshadows. We see Jesus as a better king that Ephesians says that his name will be above every name that is named and that he will put all things under his feet and give him his head over all things the church. This guy is going to be the leader of God's chosen people. Jesus is. And, and additionally, Jesus, after he's died and conquers death and rises again, tells his disciples, not just that he's going to be the leader of the chosen people, but that God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the king of the world, whether the world recognizes it or not. And Jesus fills the role as, as prophet in, in a far better way that, that Hebrews says, you know, he's almost... The Bible doesn't even really use the words prophet to describe Jesus. In fact, Hebrews says that in the past, God has spoke to, to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. See, he's better than a prophet because he is what all the Old Testament prophecies are about. And while the other prophets were merely messengers of God's word, Jesus is God's word. He's the source of God's word. Where the Old Testament guys would have to say, thus saith the Lord, or God says this. Jesus comes to people, religious leaders, to kings, to individuals, and says, truly, truly, I say to you, on his authority. And so, lastly, we see Jesus as high priest. And we see him as the embodiment and the mediator and guarantor of a new and better covenant. And this covenant, unlike the old one that we talked about in Exodus 28 and 29, is not going to be paid for by the blood of goats and of bulls. Because, as Hebrews 10 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so, Jesus fills the role of priest in three important ways. First of all, he offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. We see this in Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, that he's not just the perfect priest, but he's the perfect sacrifice. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people since he did it once and for all when he offered himself. See, by Jesus' death on the cross as our substitute, he was both the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. He wasn't insufficient like the ram and the goats and, and the, the fake priests. He was perfectly sufficient filling that covenant. And there's no more need for further sacrifices to atone for sins. Now, in our lives, following Jesus will require large amounts of sacrifice. But Jesus also, the second way he fulfills the role of priest, is he continually brings us near to God. The old priests would bring the remembrance of God themselves, but, and so Israel would never actually interact directly with God. But Jesus draws us to God. As Hebrews 9 says that Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means, again, of the blood of goats or of calves, but by means of his own blood. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. And the reason he did that, it says, is to purify our consciences of dead works so that we could serve the living God. We're washed by Jesus' blood so that we can serve God. We can come to God through Jesus. And so Jesus and the cross bridges that gap, again, between a holy God and a broken humanity. See, we don't have a need of a temple anymore. We don't have a need of, of priests or of holy of holies or of a curtain to separate us from God. In fact, when Jesus died, the Gospels say the curtain separating us from God was ripped from top to bottom. We can come before God not because of our own will or our own works, but because God 
doesn't see us anymore if we're in Christ. He sees his perfect, sinless son. And that should give us great confidence in, in many ways. Hebrews uh, 10, kind of 19 through 22, says it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and that our bodies would be washed with pure water. Jesus brings us close to God. And the third way is Jesus is our mediator in prayer. And this one is, uh, we'll spend most of our time remaining on this, but the old broken covenant, God said through Isaiah, I'm not even going to listen to your prayers anymore. And the prayers of the priests or the prayers of the people. But with relationship restored through Jesus and through Jesus being the first and the last and, and living eternally as high priest, he's able to make intercession for us. Intercession it just means that he's able to petition us before God. He's able to, it also means to plead, excuse me, on our behalf. And he's able to do so with a complete understanding of the human experience. He came to earth as a man. He lived a sinless, perfect life, but he, he dealt with the same struggles we did. And, and Hebrews 4 says it, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet he's without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him in time of need. And Jesus intercedes for us in prayer in, in a perfect way. We see it in the Gospels that while we pray selfishly, Jesus prays for God's will to be done. And the fact that Jesus prays for us is so uh, amazing and, and overwhelming, especially considering how insufficient our prayers are. Um, Louis Burkhoff, a theologian, says it this way. It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life, which I am often, I'm sure a lot of us are. But it's consoling that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which are not even present in our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. It goes on to say he prays for our protection against dangers that we don't even know or are conscious of and against enemies that threaten us that we don't even notice them. He's praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victorious in the end. That is comforting because man, I come to God in prayer sometimes and I'm like, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know sometimes how to, how to pray for my family as I should. And Sometimes it's easy for me to pray in front of Bible studies or in, in groups, but then my wife will say, Chris, we have a problem here. Can, can you pray for this? I'm just broken. I just feel inadequate. And I'm usually like, no, why don't you pray for it? Let's have what you have to say. And and then I'm reminded that I don't pray on my own accord, that I pray through Jesus. You just got to be careful when you hear people say, oh yeah, I'm praying for you about that. And you're like, well, who are you praying to? Who are you praying through? Don't go praying to some pagan demon God. Pray through Jesus. He's the only one that can come between man and God. So Jesus as our high priest is good news. It's the gospel. That he is... He didn't know sin. He was perfect. But Corinthians says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we can be back in right relationship with God, not through what we did, but through what Christ did. And so I praise God that the old covenant and the old priesthood is no longer. I'm glad I'm not wearing that today. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I'm wearing my formal flip-flops, um, and uh, that's how I came today. And, and so we see Christ as this perfect high priest. But just like Aaron had sons that were little priests for him, God calls us as his children, as his chosen people, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ, if you haven't, I don't even know what your faith is in, but put your faith in Christ, and then he, he'll cleanse you and make you new and restore you to God, and then you get to be a priest through his power 
Peter says it this way, you yourselves are like a living stone being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. And so we have a role as priests. Jesus fills us as high priest, but we have a role as priests. If you're a Christian, you need to understand you're part of a new priesthood. But where the old priest's chosen status came by their birth and their family lineage, our role as priests and our authority as priests comes by new birth, by being born again through the gospel, through the word of God, being a new creation. And we come to God not by ritual cleansings and bloody sacrifices or holy garments, but we come before him cleansed by the word of God, drenched by the blood of the cross, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, And while, again, none of this is of our own doing, it doesn't leave us without a response and without a responsibility to, without a responsibility to act in small ways as priests while always pointing to the atoning work of the high priest on the cross. Jesus is our offering for sin, but people still need to be led from sin and they need to be loved in their sin by walking with them in the process of confession and repentance and restoration. See, we don't get to act as priests by offering a sacrifice, because Jesus did that, but we can mediate the truth of the gospel to people who need it, which is everyone. And, and we can live the gospel by not just what we say, but also how we live. So we will preach to people the atoning work of Christ on the cross, And we'll speak of confession and repentance, but we'll also live transparent lives, coming to the cross ourselves, broken, understanding before we engage other people in their messes, we have a mess of our own that needs to be dealt with. So that when we help people through their sin, we don't do so with pride, but with humility. That we remove the plank from our eye before dealing with the speck in in others. And we're called to do this First in our home, here in the church, and, and, and in the community. And if we invert that order, home, church, community, or we forget one of them, we're not fulfilling our role. So we have a responsibility first to our family, to your parent or husband or wife, or just the, the people that are in your immediate sphere of influence, your close friends, your close family. We have a responsibility to them to pray for them, to pray for them, to pray for them, to pray for them, to not cease in prayer for them. I am terrible at this. Until God finally says, huh, you haven't, things are going, aren't going well and you feel disconnected. I haven't gone anywhere. You just haven't been talking to me. We're to pray for our families and we're to teach those around us God's word, his gospel. And we're to lead as an example of confession and repentance. They have to see the change in our life. And as a church were to act as a priesthood, and that's going to look differently for different individuals, but one thing that's in common, for us to be able to act as priests for one another, we all have to know one another. I don't mean like just know your name and know your job or how many kids you have or whatever, but, but it's messy that, that James says that we're going to have to confess our sins to one another. And to do that, we actually have to know who we are. And that's going to be messy, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be awkward, but... If you're struggling with mess right now or you're just wishing that there were, were people to help you, you have to make that known. And that requires vulnerability. And you have to know that, yeah, you're not going to come and be condemned for your sin, but you're going to open your sin up to us and we say, hey, God says something about that. Let's deal with that. Don't stay there anymore. We're going to walk with you to a better place through Christ. And... We're going to love you, and we're going to love each other. But our responsibility is not just confined to these new walls that we have. Gosh, this place is, it looks nice, I'll paint it, I appreciate the work everyone did, but this place could be so dangerous to us. It could be dangerous because we may think that this is where the gospel ends when we walk out that door. But the state of humanity hasn't changed. So preaching and living isn't confined to these walls. Our faith is personal. It absolutely is. It's between you and God through Christ. But it's not private. It's not to be hidden or put away or not shared. 
If God has transformed your life through what He's done on the cross, you need to be at least as excited about that as you are about whatever the new video is on YouTube. There's some good stuff there. I've been looking at some really funny stuff lately. But um, quick to share, you know, stuff like that. But So we have to understand that as a church, we have a responsibility to love people and to serve them and in practical social justice ways. But you can love somebody and serve them and just hold their hand all the way to hell. And just pass them gently into that good night. Or you can just preach truth to them and they don't hear it because you're not living with them and loving them. It's got to be both. You can't just serve your family or your church or the community without preaching truth. And you can't just preach truth that hasn't transformed your life. So we're a new priesthood. And honestly, I think that our role as priests may be harder than the ones in the guys in the Old Testament. That they could just follow some rules get cleaned up, kill some animals, go check the box, go about their lives, not worry about their hearts. It's not nearly as difficult, like Brad was saying, as dealing with the sin of other people. Which, well, the priest's job was pretty bloody and messy. And try getting involved in somebody's life is broken. Try getting involved in your own life is broken and not be so detached. And so, it's rigorous day by day to be priests leading our families. You can't take a day off. It keeps going and going and going. Where you don't get to just make dinner or kill a ram. You have to actually be involved with your family. And it's messy working with others on their recognized sin. It's even messier to deal with others on the sins they don't recognize. You have to call them out and say, hey, things are out of whack there. And it's uncomfortable and inconvenient, maybe even more so than what the priests had to go through in the Old Testament, to engage the broken, suffering culture around us that sometimes doesn't even know it's broken. And so, we do so in our homes, in our church, and in our community, proclaiming Jesus as King, as the true Word of God, and as our priest and mediator. So, I'm going to pray through Jesus as our intercessor. We're going to sing praises and rejoice in Jesus as our high priest and his work on the cross. We're going to give our offerings this morning, not to please God, but to recognize that everything comes from him and that Christ ultimately gave us the perfect offering. And we're going to take communion as remembrance of a new, better, perfect covenant through Christ's broken body and his shed blood. So, coming to God in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for people coming today to have an understanding of their brokenness, of their restoration that comes through their son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that we are not bound by the Old Testament covenant, but that you've come with a new covenant through your son, that we can be new creations, that we're not condemned to religion or to license, but we can live free and confident through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. I praise you through the power, not of my own will, but through your Holy Spirit, and by the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.